Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I don't remember growing up around anybody who didn't get high. When was the first time you saw your mother using drugs or alcohol? Every day. It was not, it was no first time. That just how it was. So how did you know that you didn't want to be the person that drank every day or did drugs every day? Because I looked at those people's lives and I was just like, I don't want that. I don't want to, first of all, nobody seemed really happy, right? So I'm like, I just feel like you're supposed to be happy in this lifetime somehow. So like, how do you get some happiness out of this deal? Now, at the same time, Barry, I had a real fear, and even I still carry this with me today, of being nothing. So success doesn't bother me, but being nothing scares me. And... I just feel like I've been given a shot at life. I made it to 17 and beyond. And I'm just going to take every shot that I can at being somebody. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about today's show with my guest, Tyrone Jackson. You are going to be blown away by this guy. An amazing, amazing man who seemingly has done it all and continues to do it all. And you're going to find out how and why. It's just an incredible, incredible story. And before I get started, I want you to know that you can reach me on Instagram or Twitter at Barry Katz, or you can look me up on my website or Facebook or any of the platforms, and I will return your message as soon as I possibly can. I want to thank you guys so much for all your support. I know I say it a lot, but you guys are truly, truly amazing, and without you, this show would absolutely be nothing, and I'm so, so happy that you like it. For you new people that are here, I'm really glad that you showed up and I hope you enjoy it as much as we do. And if you get a chance, please subscribe to the podcast, follow whatever it is. It means a lot and it helps. 
thank you so, so very much. And without further ado, let's introduce our guest today. Tyrone Jackson has been a member of the entertainment community for over 37 years. His creative and professional path has been a windy road with unexpected twists and turns. Ultimately, Tyrone landed on his feet, creating a multi-million dollar digital brand with several more to come. Jackson's path to being a successful performer started when he was one of 196 people accepted into the famous and legendary New York City's High School of the Performing Arts widely known as the fame school where he attended high school with some of the most famous people in the world right now including grammy award-winning musician bill charlap marlon wayans and jennifer aniston over the course of his 30-year career jackson has appeared in over 500 radio and tv commercials and in films appearing alongside many, many stars, including Oscar winners Morgan Freeman and Meryl Streep. After a deep series of losses and ups and downs, Jackson gives credit to a major spiritual awakening, out of which he created his first multi-million dollar digital brand, entitled The Wealthy Investor. Today, Jackson is the proud owner of several successful businesses, including Internet Media and Entertainment, Hollywood Artist Group, and the Publicity Network. In the fall of 2019, Jackson is launching two huge digital networks, the first being the Self-Help Network, and the second is the Digital Podcast Network, which is the first podcast and entertainment network targeted towards the African-American and Latino audiences. From his roots in New York, where he learned the business side of show business, including contracts, negotiation, the principles that govern collective bargaining, he still remains the youngest person ever elected to the board of directors of the Screen Actors Guild in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, straight from the Digital Podcast Network in the 818 area code incredible facility please welcome my guest today i know you're gonna love him a lot tyrone jackson well thank you thank you you look around the studio we've done a pretty good job right it's amazing this place is like a palatial mansion inside <laughs> of lancashire boulevard it's fascinating we actually have a lot of celebrities in here and we actually do like you know commercials for the nfl and all that so anyway i'm glad that you like it and thank you for that wonderful introduction no problem already you're dropping more names than oscar schindler <laughs> it's unbelievable it's la i guess it it just is in the air or something i don't know i'm excited you feel so comfortable with me because you took your shoes off not one guest and three 300 guests has ever taken their shoes off. But the most amazing thing about it, when you took your shoes off, mm -hmm. the air got better. Yes. I actually changed my socks for this interview. I said, uh, you know, the audience won't be able to smell it, but I just want the vibe to be right. You just reminded me of something in my youth. I don't know what this was with people my age. Their mom would always say, 
take off those socks, they have holes in it. What happens if something happens to you and they take off your shoes and you have holes in them? I'm like, what are you preparing for me to get hit by a car <laughs> and the ambulance is going to come and I, my feet need to be prepared for that accident? See, I, we, didn't have, we had like no money when I grew up. My mother used to say the same, same thing, but she used to say it about underwear. Did you put on clean underwear? Why? Well, if suppose something happens, you get into an accident. Like, is that... Mom, is that if I get into an accident, happen? I'm going to shit my pants anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't think the surgeon's going to... We would perform, but this kid, his underwear is the wrong color. I don't, I don't think the world works like that. I should share with the audience, I met Tyrone for the first time. He's starting this incredible digital podcast network. And one of the artists that I work with, Dean Edwards, formerly of Saturday Night Live, is one of the shows that Tyrone wanted to rally around and do and work on. And I came here and I saw the whole setup. I met him and we talked about all the things that he'd done in his life and how his life came to be where he is now. And I just thought it was an incredible story. And hopefully today I'll be able to paint the picture of your story. And you didn't really know me either. And so since we met, you probably Google searched me and found out I was an axe murderer. I did. And I did. But you were cleared on those charges. So for <laughs> me, I felt safer. No, you know, we were we were uh, in the office talking and you were just like, how do you do all this? I was just like, I'm just happy. And you're like, you're really happy. I'm like, yeah, man. I said, you don't know anything about my childhood. But like, Every day, I'm happy to wake up and have a shot. And that's just what creation is all about for me is like every day I have a shot to do something extraordinary in the world. And you said, well, how do you know it all work out? I'm like, I don't. You just have to try. But here's what I do know. I have a shot today. And that's how I that's how I kind of wake up every day. Just have a shot. So I'm happy to have a shot. So. When you were growing up, are you saying that from a very young age, you would feel hopeless and helpless? From a very young age, and this I don't mean this in any way with like ego, I knew I was different. I knew I was different. By age four, I was like, I am different than other people. And what did you see at age four that was different than your friends? Well, I, I don't know. Besides just, walking around with your shoes off all the time. That is true. I just felt like I just felt like I am here to do something extraordinary in the world. And I don't know how you tell other people that at four, but I just felt different. And I felt that I was here to do something extraordinary. Okay, so you're here to do something extraordinary. At four, you're realizing that, mm -hmm. even around your family, your mom and dad, yeah. who chances are, which is a tough thing to absorb, is that sometimes the person that delivers you to the earth plane isn't extraordinary. They're ordinary. Right. Yet they're trying their best, but they're just a regular person. Mm -hmm. They don't have the angel gift or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. They don't have the, as I like to say, charisma is something that God gives you. You can't go to school. You can go to school to be a great director. You can go to school to be a great lawyer. You can't go to school to have charisma. You either have it or you don't have it. Mm -hmm. And when you meet somebody who has it, you know immediately that something is going on. It's like a fraternity. Now, the toughest part for people listening, there's a lot of people listening who will say, I don't think I have charisma. 
how do I still get to the same level? And you can, and you can get to the same point. I think it's a little harder. It's a little harder to lead. It's a little harder to be an entrepreneur when you don't have the ability to walk in a room and light up the room and take the room. Mm -hmm. But it's very possible. And there's many, many successful people who are way more successful than the two people talking to you today. For sure. That weren't born with that gift. So getting back to you when you're four, so paint the picture of the household, mm -hmm. the mom, the dad, the brothers and sisters, the neighborhood, and tell me the first time, even though you felt extraordinary, that you felt like, man, I'm in deep shit here, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it, but I'm going to get out of it. Well, it's really sad. <clears throat> so there's a lot of sadness. That's that's how I knew. So uh, when I was born, my mother was not allowed to keep me, as it was expressed to me. So How I, old was she when you were born? She was 20 years old. So, And why wasn't she allowed to keep you? It's still a little unclear to me. What's your opinion? Uh, well, I was not a foster child, but I was shuffled. I stayed with a lot of different people. Relatives? No. People I didn't know who my parents, who my mother paid to keep me, as they uh, say. So I would stay with this woman in Long Island. And then two years later, I was shuffled off to a woman and her husband in the Bronx. And then two years later, I was shuffled off to somebody else. And so every two years, I was sent to live with other people. But I would, the term we used to use is, I would come home to my mother on the weekend. So so you saw your mother every weekend? Only on the weekends. Where did you see her? Uh, at her apartment. Um, she lived in another part of the Bronx. So I would come home and stay with her for 48 hours, and then I would go back to these other people. Okay. And so... As your life moved on from the two years to the two years, when you were in a household, mm -hmm. did you know that it was going to end in two years? No. But here's what I can tell you. I wasn't allowed to go to the refrigerator. I was, I was only allowed to eat when that person put food on the table. I don't know how this worked out, but every household I stayed in, there was a cup by the sink. And that's when I could get water any time that I wanted. But I was not allowed to have dessert or anything until they told me to. Well, that had to be a rule that was set down by your mom because every family would never know that. I'm not sure. I just know every place I lived, there was a cup. No, but you have to understand that very few people listening right now would say that they grew up and there was a cup by the refrigerator and they could only eat when... The family aid. So, and if it transferred to family after family in a pattern like that, right. that had to be a rule set forth by your mom. Why would she do that? I don't know. I just know there was a cup. Okay. And I do know um, that when I was growing up, and this was universal in every household, um, it was like everybody was mad at me. So I got talked down to a lot. 
you are nothing. Go back into that room. Blah 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 blah. Why were they all mad at you? I it, that's how it felt. I learned as time went on because I ultimately became a psychology major in college. Um, I don't know. I just know that that's how everybody treated me. It's so funny. You just said something. I became a psychology major in New York. (laughs) And so I've come to the conclusion that I don't know. I just don't know. Because you know what happens is when you're a kid, you don't really know why everything is the way that it was. But when I, I knew I was different because not only because it's just this feeling, but then when I would go to school in age at grades one, two, and three, everybody went home to their parents. And I would go home to Mr. and Mrs. such and such. So when people were like, oh, at my house last night, we did such and such, I would just kind of listen to them like, well, that's not, you know, it's not happening where I'm going, but okay. How many consecutive households of two years did you do? I can remember at least four. Four. Yeah. And so presumably these people probably got $500 a week or something to take care of you. Yes. Now, it gets a little complicated. It's normal to me, but um, my father would come and pick me up on a Friday night and he would take me to my mother's. But my father did not live with us. Okay. So he would pay these people. They would take me, he would take me home to my, uh, my mother's apartment where I could eat, go in the refrigerator, get something if I wanted, watch whatever I wanted on television. And then he would leave and he would go back to his place where he lived. And then on Saturday to Sunday, he would come back, spend the night with us. And then Sunday, take me back to whoever it was that was keeping me at the time. Uh, maybe this is too personal a question. Did he sleep in the same bed with your mom? Were they intimate then? Still? I don't know if they were intimate. You know, my when I was married, my wife was go. What do you, my wife would go. What do you think was going on? I'm like, I'm a kid. I don't know. I just know I had a place to sleep. I could eat for two days. My mother and my father, we were all together. We would go see a show. They would save enough money for us to go to like the Apollo Theater, see The Temptations, or something like that. And at home, I had um, nice clothes. And that lasted for about 48 hours. And then I would go back to these other people who I guess they just did it for the money. Wouldn't you bring your clothes with you in a little bag? No, because my I would bring clothes for the week. My mother would go, take these clothes for the week and leave your good clothes here. And I was like, oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So when is the first time when you start playing detective as a kid? And you start trying to figure out what's going on and you start asking questions that you never asked before. Well, I didn't ask questions because when you're a kid in that situation, you just want to get through the week. So I learned how to negotiate situations because I was really hurting inside. Like to not, I mean, I didn't live with my mother for the first nine years of my life. Um, except the weekends. Except the weekends. And so I missed home. I missed a bed. I missed, you know, a lot of things. And so, um, you know, I learned how to negotiate a situation. I learned how to work with people, how to work around them, how to. And then also I was a natural performer. Right. So they were like, that kid Tyrone is sure is funny. Which one? You know, the kid who sleeps in the basement. He's like really funny. 
And so you learn how to work people to bring out the sunnier side of their personality. If they were in a bad mood, I could, you know, when it was time to have dinner, I could come upstairs and, you know, do a little something that seemed to make people feel better. So it wasn't that I was putting pieces of the puzzle together. Like emotionally, I was just surviving until my father came on Saturday, a Friday night. So it was no pieces. It was just like hot. It was no strategy other than like, how do I make it to the weekend so that I could see my father, who was so incredibly loving and so incredibly kind and so smart that like, I just can't wait till Friday comes and then I can see daddy again. How much older was he than your mom? He was 25 years older than my mother. I know it's a really weird dynamic, but he was 25 years older than my mother. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And did he have children of his own? He had three kids of his own. Was yeah. he married? No, his wife had died uh, before I came on the scene. And so he met your mom when she was a teenager. Yes. And he was 25 years older. Yes. That's like today. Yes, it is. The only difference is my mother was sleeping on the floor in a building where he was renting. So she was pregnant, sleeping on the floor. And he was just like, why are you sleeping on the floor? And he had watched her with her friends in the neighborhood. This is in Harlem. In the mid to late 60s. Okay, so he has an apartment in Harlem. Correct. And he's living there. Mm -hmm. And what is he doing at the time to make the rent and make money? You know, I don't remember, but he was heavily into black businesses, not like, like legitimate businesses, which eventually evolved into him being able to get government grants for minority businesses. And he was really good at grant writing. Um, but I think ultimately what happened is he fell in love with my mother. Okay. She was homeless. But he met her when she was homeless, a homeless teenager. And pregnant, yeah. And pregnant. Mm -hmm. So your father isn't actually your father. Well, I didn't discover that until I was 17. I thought he was my father because that's what everybody said and everybody in the family said but um and that was a major turning point obviously because when i was um nine years old i came to live with my mother at home so now things seem sort of kind of normal and dad comes over on the weekends right and anything i needed he got right so like i, I always knew because my mother's rule when it came to money was um don't ask me for any money i don't have any repeat that 
Don't ask you for any money. I don't have any. Say it again. Don't ask you for any money. I don't have any. Okay, cool. So we don't have anything. So don't ask for anything. But my father, I could go, you know, dad, I sure would like, you know, could we go to the circus? He was like, sure. We want to go to the circus. We'll make that happen. Right. So. And he was also very kind. My mother was also really hard on me. So I, w- I could get slapped in the mouth for anything. But at least I was home. That's the way it felt to me. Like, okay. Because once I got home, I realized, like, oh, this is going to be, like, I got to survive this now. How often would your mom hit you? Well, my mother was really angry. So when she came home from work, if she was not in a good mood, I was going to feel it. Do you feel like as a child you learn that you can avoid that by just not engaging? I couldn't avoid it. Can't avoid it. So even if you kept completely quiet, you came in and whatever, it could be like, why aren't you talking to me? Yeah, Yeah, or why didn't you take out the garbage on Monday and it's Wednesday and it was gonna rain. Got it, so every week you were hit. Uh, I wouldn't say every week, but it was a lot. What about your dad? Did he ever? Well, he strike? wasn't there. He was. He wasn't. But he, he never laid a hand on you. Never. 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 He was the kindest, most loving. You know, I I think about him every day because I'm like, without him, I don't know who I would be. I would be really angry. <laughs> but he was the he was the number one source of love in my life. And so when I was 17 and I found out that he wasn't my father. How'd you find out? Well, twists and turns, right? So my mother was also very beautiful. Like everybody used to say, oh, your mom's the best looking mom in the neighborhood. So a lot of men were after her. And um, when I was about 16, she reconnected with what I later found out was my biological father's Um, best friend. So my biological father, I found out, was murdered in 1974. But his best friend had grown, he had, long story, but he was was a heroin addict, then he reformed himself, then he ran this treatment program, and somehow he and my mother met up, okay, and fell in love. But I guess he always liked her. So as they started seeing each other, he was just like, well, I would like to meet Tyrone, because he knew my biological father. Anyway, that relationship grew, and about two years into it, they decided, like, hey, maybe we're going to get married. And his mother, this is a little bit like a soap opera, but this is really my life. His mother said, if you marry her, you never, you will never move in with her, because they were Catholic. You never move in with her, and I won't allow it. And so then my mother says to Juan, his name was Juan, she says, um, uh, are you going to be a man? And because my mother was a little hard. She was like, are you going to be a man and come live with me before we get married? And because my mother would never allow it. She goes, well, when are you going to be a man? He goes, well, when are you going to tell Tyrone who he really is? I'll never forget those words. You were there. and No, my mother told me this story. Later. Oh, God. So I came in when I was 16, 17, one day from the playground. And my mother says to me, um, I have to talk to you. And I said, okay. And she was um, sweeping up the floor. And she goes, now, my, uh, my father's name is James Malloy, the one I feel like really is my father, right? And she called him Malloy. And she says, um, 
Malloy is not your real father. And I said, okay. Just like that. Just like that. And I said, okay. And she says, um, now, do you want to know who your real father is? And I was like, yeah. I, I mean, I was just, you know, what do you say when someone says that? There's no appropriate response. So she goes, well, sit down and I'll tell you who you really are. And she goes through this story of like, you know who Juan is? I'm like, yeah, the guy who you're seeing, you guys told me. She goes, well, Juan is your biological father's best friend. And he's known you since the day that you, he's known who you were since the day that you were born. And she goes through this whole history. And she goes, uh, your real father was killed in 1974. And because apparently he ran drugs for organized crime. And um, he stole money. And they rounded up him and a couple of the guys who stole money and they put him in a room and they burned them alive. Now, I'm 17 years old. This is getting kind of heavy, as you can imagine. And um, and she goes, and that's your real family. And she says, and you have a whole nother family that you don't know about. So, like, your whole tree of what is real, like I call it your reality tree, it gets shaken. So now I say to her, well, all those people who I think are my cousins, are they your cousins? She was like, no, that's not really your biological family. I'm like, well, my grandfather, is that really my grandfather? Because that's really your grandfather. So I go through this list of like, who's real, who's not real. And I can't, I just can't believe this. I, I mean, I just, I was devastated. I didn't know I was devastated at the time. And she goes, I think we sat there for maybe like an hour, 15 minutes. She goes, all right, so are you good? And I was like, yeah. And I remember going back into my room like, you know, this should be something I'm seeing on TV. <sighs> wow. And can I tell you my favorite part of the story? I was silent for four days when I came home. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. And my mother says, I don't know what this silence thing is about, but you better knock it off. Everybody has a hard life, so get over it. Do you understand me? And I was like, yes. And that's how my teenage life started. <laughs> so you're 17. I'm 17. You're about to venture off on your own. Mm -hmm. And now you have another huge hole blown through you. That was, even still now, I still feel the weight of that. Like I could never, I have kids of my own, right? I could never drop it like that if anything were big to happen in the family history. So what I, what, so I was right. I was different. Turns out I, I was different, right? And by the time I was 16, 17 years old, this is the truth. Now, what happens is, and, and I'm, I'm sure someone out there listening has had a, a story that's kind of similar, is like, now where do I go with my life? Because now I'm afraid to ask about anything that's truth. This is why truth is so important to me, because I don't want to go back in there and, you know, because the next question is like, are you really my mother? Right. But I didn't want to because I was told to get over it. And so I didn't want to ask that. So that was a important moment for me or period for me, because when I 
sat back, I was like, you know, all these things that have happened to me happened when I had no control. But now that I'm 17, like now I'm going to make today, I would call it conscious choices. Like my life is going to go forward now because I spent some time like carving a path. Well, the first thing you did where you took control back, you stopped talking. That was your control. That was your first control mechanism. Is that right? Oh, yeah, man. Uh Because it's like you're in control. No one can make you talk except when she did. She said, you better knock this off. And she meant it. Now, But you're 17. Now you tower over her. You're stronger than her. She can't fuck with you anymore. You're Mm -hmm. about to leave the house. Why didn't you just say to her, I'll knock it off when I want to knock it off? Because that's not what you said to my black mother. I tried it one night, and she picked up the TV set, and she threw it, and that was not going to work. Okay. Yeah. Now, just to lay the story out, I wasn't allowed to tell my father that I knew that he wasn't my father. You weren't allowed to tell him. I was not allowed to have that. So in my family, we have a lot of secrets, right? So, or we did back then. I don't like secrets. I was not allowed to say, hey, dad, mom told me the truth. And I realized that you're not, that was not allowed. So I had to move on as if we were, everything was normal. But I don't understand. You're about to leave the house. I wasn't about to leave the house. I was about to go to college. Yeah. But I didn't have the means to go anywhere. I could make decisions about where I wanted my life to go, but I couldn't leave because I didn't have anything. So you were staying at home while you went to college? Yes, because we had no money. So it was no— Cost money to go to college. Well, that was another story. When I, uh, I went to performing arts high school. So, so here's, here's the thing. You went to the performing arts I went high to school. The, I went with uh, uh, Jennifer Aniston. Fame, yeah. I'm going to live forever. Uh, Marlon Wayans was there. Uh, Dondre Whitfield, uh, Reno Wilson, like all these people who are like now on TV and in movies and have Grammys and all that. They were all classmates. That cost money, man. No, performance was free if you got in. They only chose 196 people a year. It was free. Yeah, it's a free public high school. And I came in in the year that they made the movie fame. So what happened was, although I had all these sad things going on at home, I was I got into a school with the only extremely talented people got into. So when I would go to school, there was happiness because you were learning how to sing and dance and storytell and break down scenes and Mozart and Beethoven and all that. So like that's when it started to get a little brighter because I was becoming like an artist, right? Not just raw talent, becoming an artist. So it was like, okay, there was hope because if I could work this talent thing, like maybe I could be somebody. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, 
one-on-one -on -one coaching with me and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount. A $100 discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600 and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. So, you want to tell your dad. Did you ever think about going up to him and saying, listen, you're my dad. We have this bond. I need to know if I can tell you something that just stays between us. I need to tell you something. Did you ever think about that? I thought about it. So this is, this is what happens when you grow up in a family where there's a lot of secrets, right? When you say a lot of secrets, a what does of, that mean? There like, was just a lot of secrets. There were just things that I was told to say in front of people and things that I couldn't say in front of people. Before your mom told you this, you'd go to the cousin's place and she'd yeah. say, hey, listen, tell Auntie Barbara that she had nice hair and you're so grateful that she gave you this thing here and she never gave you anything or whatever it was. Right. Probably your mom took it. Yeah. There was just things like that where you didn't say. It's, 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 it's weird. It's like you know the rules of what to say and what not to say to people. When was the first time you fucked up? I never did, because that was not the rule. You never made a mistake? Never. 
I followed the rules. It's weird. I guess people who like come from crime families understand, you know, there's, there's just a code and we just don't break that code. My mother was but like your dad, your biological dad mm-hmm. broke the rules and he was killed. Yes. So that's the message that if you break the rules. No, the message is you don't break the code. Period. Not because of the consequences. You just don't do it. And that rule was very much understood. And before you found out the first secret, Mm -hmm. the big secret about your dad. Yeah. How many secrets did you know about before then? Probably about seven. Seven. Yeah. Are you allowed to talk about any of them on this Uh, podcast? I I don't think it's fair to talk about, but let's just put it this way. There was a lot of drug addiction. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I only knew people who were alcoholics and uh, addicts. And no one could tell when they were in their presence. Uh, Well, everybody was high. (laughs) So I don't remember growing up around anybody who didn't get high. When was the first time you saw your mother using drugs or alcohol? Every day. It was not. It was no first time. That just how it was. What was she doing? She was just doing things that I would not do. When was the first time you did something that was alcohol or drug related? Uh, In the uh, sixth grade, I was hanging out with the older kids at the sand park and I smoked, um, what was that called? Um, uh, Hashish, hash, hash for the first time. And so now you have your first secret. Well, I guess you could look at it that way. I was just like, everybody else is doing it. Let me try it. You didn't tell your mom though, did you? No, 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 no. So that's the first secret. Uh, I guess you could look at it that way. But there were many more secrets before that. It was just, it was just a lot of things that you didn't tell. So how did you know that you didn't want to be the person that drank every day or did drugs every day? Because I looked at those people's lives and I was just like, I don't want that. I don't want to. First of all, nobody seemed really happy. Right. So I'm like, I just feel like you're supposed to be happy in this lifetime somehow. And when I looked at what they would, first of all, this is the thing that I really remember. And, uh, and, and, you know, you just have to remember, like, a lot of people go, oh, you go to humor. It's like, because this, you know, as sad as it was, there were some things that were just funny to me. So on Sunday, when all of the grownups were around, right, um, everybody hated Sunday because they're like, oh, I got to go back to that job tomorrow. And. You know, I have to do this and I have to do that. And oh, and they just would bellyache. And I was just like, man, I don't want to grow up and like hate Monday mornings. So like, how do you get some happiness out of this deal? Now, at the same time, Barry, I had a real fear. And even I still carry this with me today of being nothing. So success doesn't bother me. But being nothing scares me. And. The only way I can describe it is more in spiritual terms. Like, I just feel like I've been given a shot at life. I made it to 17 and beyond. And I'm just going to take every shot that I can at being somebody. Like, whatever that meant. So, first of all, it meant getting some kind of education so I knew what was going on in the world other than just my neighborhood. So, I went. I wound up going to Hunter College. 
And I was always fascinated by human behavior. And that's this is after performing arts. And then uh, I knew I was going to be a performer of some kind. But I was like, I feel like I should learn something about the world. And I was always fascinated by people. Like, how did we become who we became? And in college is where I started to get a lot of major insights into myself and into the world that seemed so tiny that I came from. So that's when I learned how to, like, match my vocabulary with my feelings. So I was like, oh, I feel sad. I'm learning this in college, right? Like, oh, that's a feeling. That's an emotion. Because I think when you're trying to survive something, when you're just growing up trying to survive every day and just make it to the next day, um, you don't really feel your feelings. Because you're just trying to, like, if I could just make it to this next point, next point, next point. So anyway, when I became 17, I started, I realized I had the ability to look forward. And I was like, wow, I could see things in the future if I make choices today. As I'm listening to you talk, I hope you don't jump over the the studio here and strangle me, but it appears like your mother was one of the pioneers of the arrangement. Okay. Where the older man Mm -hmm. meets the younger woman Mm -hmm. and gives them money for rent Mm -hmm. and food Mm -hmm. and whatever in exchange for... Love and intimacy. Correct. Your mom was one of the first people doing that. I don't think she was the first. One of the first. No, wasn't one of the first. Because I grew up in a neighborhood where nobody had a debt. In the black neighborhood where I grew up, that was the way it was. I guess everybody was a pioneer. If we look at that. But that was the way that it was. It wasn't. I was not the only. Nobody had a dad around. I, so I'll tell you where I felt, this is where I really felt lucky for the first time. I had a dad. At least he came over on the weekends is the way that I saw it. Because all my friends who are African-American and Latin, they didn't have dads. So this was, this is the way life was. I was lucky. I had a guy who bought me a bike, right? So that's the way life was. It wasn't until I discovered white kids. I was like, wait a minute, you have a father? You have a house and you guys have a car and like, you know how the bills are going to be like, wow, this is crazy. Did your mom date and sleep with other men and bring them home while she was still with the person that you believed was your father? Yes. And so how did you justify that? You don't justify it. That's just the way it was. And you could never tell your dad that she was sleeping with this guy over the I house. I think he knew, you know. So what happens is... When well, he never came over when another guy was there. No, I guess they worked that out. But you got to remember, though, Barry, as a kid, I'm not doing this deep analysis. I'm just, like, living, right? And I'm looking around going, I guess this is the way that it is. And I don't want to go too, too far in the future because, you know, my life has been pretty glorious and all that. You know, I try to explain just a little bit of this to my daughters. They're like, come on, you're making all this. I'm like, you know what? Because their world is just so, they will never believe what I've come from. You're a kid and she has you on the weekends and there's guys coming in. Well, they would, you know, like, they would like, it wasn't like you were running in and out. She would see someone for six months and it didn't work out and there'd be a break and there'd be like another guy who was. And did know. she have a job? Yeah, she did. She did. Got it. So you, she had a regular job and oh, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, my father had helped her, kind of like groomed her and was like, this is how you get a job, this is how you get an interview, this is how you get, this is how you file your taxes. And 
So you're growing up in this situation. When's the first time you meet somebody that you're like, okay, I want to get some action. I want to lose my virginity. Okay. So this is where, for me, was really interesting. Because all of the black guys in my neighborhood got girls pregnant at 17, 18, 19, 20. And I was like, I'm not walking that path. So I was like, no girls right now. I got to, today I would say, I got to get my head right. And I have to, because I want to make something of myself. And all it took was one girl. If I got one girl pregnant, I w- so I was just not going to do it. So there were girls who I liked, but I was, it was just not going to be in a relationship. Because I'm like, I can't do anything right now that risks me having a life. Wow. Okay. And that was an internal thing I didn't tell people about. I was like, so I had girls I liked. I was 17. But I was like, I'm not hooking up with you. No way, because that could cost me this shot. Because I always felt like there was this window open. And I'm like, man, if you could make it past 21 without getting anybody pregnant or two or three girls pregnant, right? Like, you got some running room after that. So I was the first one in my family to graduate high school because all the guys, once they got girls pregnant, they went to prison. Now, let me just make the distinction Jail is where you go to wait to find out if you're guilty or not. Prison is where you do the time. A lot of people go, that person went to jail. No, they went to prison to do the time. I knew that at 17. I knew the difference between jail and prison. So I'm like, "Mm -mm. I'm not going to jail, prison, and I'm not getting anybody pregnant. Got it. So as you're growing up, Mm -hmm. what's your first inspiration that you saw or that somebody turned you on to that gave you the excitement and the vision to want to be in the entertainment business? Well, I always knew I was going to be in the entertainment business. I just We had to see something or you had to know something. You can't just be walking on the street saying, I want to be in entertainment because there's nothing you see in entertainment. So you had to see something for the first time to inspire you, what was it? Okay, every once in a while, my parents could scrape together enough money for us to go to the Apollo Theater or the circus. We would go there, and my mother was like, you're going to see a show tonight. What kind of show? What was the first show you ever saw? James Brown. Your mom and dad took you to see James Brown at the Apollo. Yes, and we went every year when he came. And when I saw James Brown on the stage, I was like, I'm going to be in front of people. Wow. Because I was just like James Brown. And he was up there doing everything. Ladies and gentlemen, give me ladies my next song. And can I get a cold sweat? And he was just doing his thing. I'm like, I like that. <laughs> I like that. I, I didn't know I was going to be, I didn't want to be James Brown, but I wanted to be in front of people performing. And that was it. And then, you know, you'd see like the Four Tops or the Spinners. And I didn't know who these groups was. I was just like, they all look so clean. And, and my mother had the record. So when I go home on the weekend, I'd be like, where's that, where's that Spinner record? She was like, that's down there. And the, you're digging in the, deeper, in the deeper pile. You get the Spinner's record. And you put them on. And it was just like being back there. And then when I saw Broadway, I was like, what is this? What was your first Broadway show you saw? <laughs> you know, this is really heavy. For six, I was six years old. And my mother took me to a show called Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. And it was a political musical about whitey and and black people. Now, I just want to delineate this because I think this is something that a lot of people might not know and you could elaborate on. 
there are these Broadway shows that are produced by African-American people, Mm -hmm. and they're not technically on Broadway, Mm -hmm. but they tour in Broadway-sized theaters all across the country. And in New York, traditionally, it would be at the theater that was at 72nd Street. What was the theater there on the west side? You mean the Beacon? Yes, the Beacon. Yeah, right. Uh Uh-huh. But there were also theaters that held about 1,000 or 1,500, and these young black entrepreneurs would write their own shows, Mm -hmm. direct them sometimes, cast them, and they would always be sold out. And so I'd be walking on the West Side, and there'd be thousands and thousands of African-American people dressed to the nines, and I'm wondering, what's going on here? They were technically Broadway-esque shows, yeah. but they weren't Broadway. Was this show you saw no, on Broadway? No, real Broadway. The, so you like, went on Broadway to see this show? Oh, yeah. Got it. Yeah. And this first political show, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, for a six-year-old, where people are like, and the problem with Whitey is, and then they would sing a song. I'm like, wow, okay, cool. You know, <laughs> I don't know what that, the first Broadway show that I identified with was when we went to see The Wiz. Stephanie Mills and the Wiz. And and I was just like, wow. Like, that's where I saw, like, a story and curtains moving. And, orge- you know, today I call it orchestrations and harmonies, complex harmonies and all that. I was just like, wow, this is interesting. So this is, this is what I find sort of kind of interesting about my life. Like, there was always the magic of theater and performing, which covered up so much of the sadness that I was experiencing experiencing, which gave me something to aspire to. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of money to go to a lot of Broadway shows, but then we started, I don't know what happened, but then we would, instead of going one a year, we would go two a year. I guess the income tax refund, you know, because that was a big, my mother was like, when we get our income tax check, we're going to go see another Broadway show. I was like, all right. So then it was The Wiz and it was Bubbling Brown Sugar. And then I, I didn't even know white people were on Broadway because my mother had this one thing. I know it was, it was a sad set of circumstances, but there was humor. So my mother had this one certain comments I could rely on. I was like, Mom, did you see that movie? She goes, was there any black people in it? I was like, no. She goes, then I didn't see it. So I didn't even know until I was like 14 that white people were in Broadway shows because we only went to black shows. And then we went to the Apollo Theater. So... That was the brightness in my life. How old were you when you had your first white friend? Um, uh, well, when you grow up in a poor black neighborhood, there's always that one white family, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't say anything at the time. You're like, "How'd you get here?" <laughs> All right. I mean, we're cool at everything, but like, how did this? It just seemed like there was a malfunction in the system or something. So like, and people were always okay with that one family. They didn't fuck with them. No, and the family was down. Like they understood everything. They understood the lingo, the attitude. So they were just like one of the gang. And nobody, no racism. No, no. It was just who was better and faster on the you know football team and. We did touch football and all that. And can I tell you this? So it's like this, this for me, there's like these levels of like hope and inspiration in Broadway and then back to sadness. So when I was that kid growing up, I wasn't good at anything other than just like telling jokes and entertaining people. So here's this. This actually is a huge lesson for me. So in our neighborhood, what we would do is all the guys would get together and we would play a game of touch football. 
right? And it was just two guys, James and Bernard, and they were the fastest and the best, and they were always captains. Now, what happens is when you, everybody puts their foot in or stands up in a circle, the tempo of who's chosen is fast. Who do you want, man? I got James. I got Kevin. I got ba 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 ba. And then they were like, it always comes down to the last two guys, and those are the worst guys in the neighborhood. So it was me, who was the worst guy, and then the really really fat kid that we all know. You had to do something with the fat kid, right? So they would say, so they would say, you know, the tempo ba 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 ba. Who do you want? And James Hill would look at the fat kid and look at me. He'd be like, um, we'll take the fat kid. Let's go. Because here's what I didn't know. See, so sometimes like pain is an, a tremendous teacher. Every once in a while, they would go, go, we will go deep on this one. You go deep. Everybody just go towards the end zone. So the kid would take the ball. Nobody was open but me. And the only reason I was open because the guy who was supposed to cover me knew I would never catch the ball. So James would put the ball up. He was like, oh, man, I got no choice. So he would throw the ball up in the air. I would see it was coming towards me. Right. I would look at the ball, put my arms out and then close my eyes. Right. (laughs) And then what would happen is the ball would bounce out of my hand. And everyone would go, oh, man, why did you throw it to Tyrone? Right. Like this was constant. When I got older, I learned that you're supposed to track the ball, keep your eyes open, catch the ball, pull it to you, turn, pivot and run towards the end zone. Which is so interesting because like like the businesses and everything, I'm really good at systems now. I see systems like, oh, that connects to that and that connects to that. So what happens is when I start a new business or something, I have phenomenal growth because now I know to look for the system. Back then, I didn't know you're supposed to keep your eyes open for the ball, catch it, pull it in, and then run in this direction. Like that was a system. So although it was very painful, I think about that a lot. Like, okay, so I need a system for... Great metaphor for business. Yes. All right. So you're inspired by these shows. Mm -hmm. You know you want to be in the entertainment business. Mm -hmm. You're getting up in your teenage years to the point where, okay, well, the only logical place for me to do this is to go to school for something having to do with entertainment. Yep. I want to know how you identified the fame high school and how you prepared for that test or that audition to get accepted there, knowing that you had no support system at home and no tools to help you prepare and get there. How did you make that happen? So this is where I just think it's all blessings. Because the junior high school that I went to had a reputation for applying, uh, for finding kids who were um, talented, you know, a little bit more mature than their age group. So, and this is where I'm really thankful of other people because um, people who were at my junior high school said, you're really talented. You know what you should do? You should apply for that school. And since they had had such a high success rate of getting people into performing arts, they told me what to do. What did they see you doing in junior high school that told them that you were talented? Uh, I was in all the school plays. Musicals? Musicals. So you were a singer, a dancer, and an actor. I faked it. I just did what I saw on Broadway. 
but you sang and you danced and you acted. Correct. And then I also played an instrument. So four, a quadruple threat. Well, I, well, I don't think I was a threat. I just was worked really hard. But you did four things well. I did four things. I don't know if I did them well, but I did four things. And apparently I was a little bit more mature at that age at singing or dancing or, you know. Okay, so then that junior high tells you how to prepare for the performing yeah, high school. Yeah, they go, this is what you need to do if you want to get in. What did they say? Uh, first of all, on the instrument side, you, it was all about intonation. Like you have to play with really good pitch and uh, some feeling and a lot of other musical things. Like this is how you phrase. They're going to ask you to sight read. When they sight read, focus on phrasing. What was your instrument? Believe it or not, I played the tuba. I know it's hard for people to, to, to know that, but that is what I did. Okay. And which is a beautiful instrument if you know how to play it well. Great. Okay. And how many minutes in the test or the audition do you play the tuba? Three minutes. Three minutes of the tuba. Okay. So they prepare you for that. Mm -hmm. What's the next thing they prepare you for? Uh, and then there was a, like a little personality interview. They're going to talk to you about you. Okay. And what did they tell you to say? They were like, well, in my case, they were like, just be you. <laughs> just be you. So just go in and be Tyrone. They'll ask you about a story. You tell them a story. I was like, okay, got it. Got what it. was the story you told them? I don't remember. I don't remember. But I do remember that I auditioned for two departments. I auditioned for the drama department and the music department. And I had to do a monologue for the drama department. What monologue did you choose? Something I, made, I found in a book, and it didn't go well. But when you were rehearsing it for the junior high teachers, it mm -hmm. was going well. Uh, I actually didn't tell anybody I was going to audition for both departments because some people felt like you'd be stronger getting in as a musician okay. and they were right because I went in an audition <laughs> and in the middle of my two minutes they were like ah oh, thank you very much and I was like well music next week like my whole thing was like just get in well, how'd you know you'd gotten in with music uh because I played with intonation and phrasing and all of the things I was instructed to do now how'd you find out you got in uh they used to send you a letter uh, by a certain date in the uh, in, in your mailbox. And I went down to that mailbox, and when I read, congratulations, I was like, oh, my God. But part of me was like, well, I came from a place that had a reputation of supplying talent, so that helped. Like, I had a couple things going in my favor. But when I went to performing arts high school, that changed my whole life. Because there, even though it was a high school, um, they were training you to be a professional. Like to go out and do this for a living. So they raise the bar on anything. Who creative. makes a living playing the tuba? Uh, you'd be surprised. There's six guys who do it. <laughs> There's six men in the world who make money playing the tuba. <laughs> right. Most of them are in symphonies and all that. But when I got to performing arts, I realized I'm not a musician. I'm really more of an actor, performer type. Okay. So how long into the high school did you realize that? Uh, by my sophomore year. Okay, so how do you take steps to get into the other side of the performing side? This was crazy. I went to the chairman of the department at the time, and I was like, I'm going to be an actor, and I'm going to be a performer, and I'd like to audition for you because I think you should accept me <laughs> in the middle of the year, which was unheard of. And I don't know what happened. He was just like, okay. What did you do for your audition? Uh, some monologue that I had seen some other student do. And after the monologue was over... That chairperson looked at me and he goes, I never do this, but I'll take you. Wow. Yeah. 
tell our audience how many hours you prepared for that audition. Well, you know, there's a funny thing. When you're really being your creative self, there's like no time. It's just, you're just, I put some time into it. I know I got some coaching from um, some other students and a t- I pulled a teacher and someone was like, I'm doing this model. Could you help me? And so I don't remember the time. And I had started doing community theater, even though I was in school for music. So I had matured and got even better. And at performing arts, we, we call it PA. Um, you're just around so much excellence. And I'm not talking about people who want to be famous. I'm talking to pe- people who are really working on, you know, uh, Shakespeare and getting to know scripts and breaking down characters. And like you do that all day. So when you're in the presence of that kind of excellence, like playing basketball with Michael Jordan, I don't care who you are. You are going to get better. And you learn to respect, respect and um, refine your skills. Which is hard in Hollywood. You know, you come here to Hollywood. It's like who works hard to make a podcast great, but you try your best to create something excellent. That's what we were always taught. So you're in these classes. You're doing shows with people who are now household names, like Jennifer really Aniston and, yeah, and really Marlon Wayans. Mm-hmm. Were there people that you saw that you're like, "There's no doubt that person is going to be a star." And they didn't make it. And were there people you saw who you thought, listen, don't quit your day job. And they became huge stars. Yeah. um, But you learn early on, don't make any bets on anybody's career because you don't know. Now, here was the thing that is interesting. And a lot of people who uh, a lot of our PA people, we don't really talk about this. But I can tell you one person who was a year ahead of me, because it's a very small school, so you kind of, you get to know everyone, at least a hello, goodbye, right? There was a guy who um, uh, was in the dance department named Eric Jarvis, right? And he was no different than anybody else, super talented, always had a smile on his face, so on and so forth. I, didn't, I wasn't a dancer, so I didn't really know what his skill level was. But Eric is one of, he's one of the top brain scientists in the world. PBS did a whole special on him. So what happens is you are around so much excellence that you didn't know who was going to do what, but we were being trained to be extraordinary, not ordinary. And when someone is training you to be extraordinary and you take to that, you tend to think in extraordinary ways, right? So like just those lessons that we would get on a daily basis. And then famous people would come in and they'd be like, this is what it's really like out there. If you don't want to do this, go do something else. So everybody's choosing like, oh man, I keep hearing this is really hard. So like, I have to be excellent if I just want a shot. So while I've got all this stuff going on inside of me from my home life, I'm being trained to be excellent. So it was just like, wow, but I really wanted to be excellent. So your first show that you're cast in at the performing mm-hmm. high school, mm-hmm. what's the show? What's your role in it? And did your mom and your dad, who wasn't your biological dad, come to see the show? They did not because I didn't want anybody to come see me perform. That was my safe space. I never invited them. They never saw you perform in their they, whole lives. They did. When I got some off-Broadway um, dramatic shows. They would come, but I would never, I'd be like, ah, we're just doing this thing at school. I know you're working. You can't come because that was like my safe 
Did you have to audition for these plays? Well, I did something you were never supposed to do because after. So what happened was because they were training us to be extraordinary, right? So that the chairman of the drama department said, "I'll accept you," and I thought the music department would let me transfer because they. Um, I didn't think I was really that great of a musician. And when I went upstairs and I said, "Hey, listen, I know I'm not the really that great here. I would like to transfer to the drama department." The chairman of the drama department said, "No, we need you here." I was like, "What?" He goes, we need you here to play in the orchestra. I was like, but I'm not really that good. He goes, no, we need you here. So he goes, so you're not going anywhere. You're one of the six tuba players. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Like, where do you think you're going? I'm like, but everybody else is really talented. Like, if I left and he said no. So I have this thing that happens to me in my life when I get really angry, something really big is going to happen. I was angry because I, so what happened was, it was a newspaper at the time called Backstage. Used to have auditions. Of course. Yep. I went and got backstage, and I was like, "If they're not going to let me do it here, I'll be on TV in three months." For those of you who aren't in this crazy business, Backstage is a publication. Now it's probably online, where it's your shortcut to getting where you need to go when you don't have an agent or a manager. Yes. So sometimes certain productions they reach out for talent because they're not happy with what they're getting from the casting directors or it's parts that are smaller and they throw people a bone, whatever's happening. Independent productions that don't have a lot of money, but they need quality actors. But you have to, it costs money to put an ad in backstage. Well, I started working to get money to... What were you doing to work? uh, I was a messenger. I would deliver packages. On a bicycle? No, I would just take the subway and, you know, go to 555 Fifth Avenue and then go someplace else. Got it. Yeah. So the first gig I went to out of backstage, which was this off, off Broadway show in some dusty theater, they chose me. While I'm at that audition, this woman who I'm auditioning with, she was just like, well, where do you go to school? I go to performing arts. She goes, you know, it's funny. I know a guy who's a manager and he's looking for someone like you. A week later, I met that guy. A month later, I was on TV. I had booked a commercial. So now I was in the union and like and and this whole thing with my father had just ha- you know the information had just and I was like I got to take control of my life I'm going to make great things happen and so all these things started happening. So you drop out of high school? No, 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 you no, no. Said you finished high school? No, I did. But how I, could you do these shows and movies? Because you would do them at night. <laughs> you do the shows after school. Okay. Yeah, you go to school and you go to rehearsal. Everybody did that in those days. Okay, but the commercials and shoot at night. I would skip a day of school. They were like, "Where were you, Mister Jackson?" I was like. I was shooting a commercial, bitch, because you wouldn't let me go. You know, it was that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Then my teachers started seeing me on TV, and I knew I was on my way. On TV in the commercial. Mm-hmm. What was the commercial? It was for members-only jackets with a country and western group called the Gatlin Brothers. Got it. Shot in Central Park. Was that the first commercial you ever auditioned for? That was the first one I ever auditioned for. And they so were you, like you booked the first audition you ever auditioned for. You yep. booked the first play you ever auditioned for outside of the performing arts theater and then i turn around and then you got the first manager you ever had and then i got a movie part like all within 120 days and what was the movie it was this movie for hbo with a uh, an actress if you have you have to be older dina merrill do you remember dina yeah dina merrill was in this movie and i had two lines in this movie that was shooting somewhere in upstate new york 
And I was the boyfriend of somebody who's really famous right now named Tashina Arnold. Do you know Tashina? Of course. Mm -hmm. Martin. Yep. And so I was her boyfriend in this movie and like I was ready to go. That was it. And you fell in love with Tashina Arnold. No. uh, She was always as charismatic as she is now. I was watching her in an interview the other night and I'm like, same old Tashina. But at least now I'm in the circle now to, of getting auditions. So you booked a film, yes. your first film, your Very first, first commercial, mm-hmm. your first play, yep. and you have a manager. Yep. Yeah. It happened really fast. <laughs> and you're making money now. And now I'm making money all because or all connected to the information I had learned about my um, father. I was like, my, I'm going to make a extraordinary change in my life like everything that has happened to me i am now gonna flip it all and i'm gonna do amazing things plus i was going to a school where like we were being trained to be extraordinary they kept telling us that so you're like okay well my job is to go out and be extraordinary doesn't matter who else is at the audition i'm gonna be excellent it doesn't say that those other people aren't talented you just are trained to be excellent and that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com. Type in the promo code Barry and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. Get a notebook and a pen and write down your dreams. Write them all down because there is a way. There is a way. Keep writing your dreams down. Focus on them on a daily basis and the right people will show up in your life. And pray and meditate. Because if you maintain a connection with the universe, the universe will help all of those things actually manifest. Focus is everything. Whatever you focus on expands and grows. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. 
for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.